We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, lots going on today. And obviously the big local story, the uh, report out in regard to uh, the Red Hill Valley Parkway and, and, and the study that was going on in regard to uh, friction on, on, on the, uh, on the roadway and then whether that had uh, got to the right hands, blah, blah, blah. And a commissioner tasked with making recommendations of uh, the city around the major roadway is suggesting multiple actions, including reinforcing responsibility within the public works uh, division. The commissioner says more collaboration may have reduced the risk on the Red Hill Valley Parkway. Uh, He submitted a lack of clarified responsibilities among the city's traffic group and engineering services was an issue and proposes mechanisms be put in place to reinforce joint responsibility of uh, the Red Hill Valley Parkway and the Lincoln Alexander Parkway. Uh, The Public Works Department should treat traffic safety on the road and uh, both these roads as a shared responsibility of all members of the department in his uh, first recommendation. Also suggested Public Works adopt a process for more comprehensive safety approach similar uh, to that of many of the Ministry of Transportation and develop a library of third-party reports as well as more consistent reporting to council and committees. Uh, accurate disclosure to the media and public, as well as improving preparation of consultants and city staff also advise. So what do we get? What do we know? Um, what comes out of the end of this? I guess time will, will tell as to, uh, um, you know, whether this was worth, worth it or not, or what we have actually found out uh, moving forward. Also, uh, the mayor of Hamilton, um, uh, Mayor Horbath has also uh, talked about this and re- released a report and uh, as well as expressing the remorse to the families who've been impacted by the tragic accidents of the Red Hill Valley Parkway. Uh, major steps have already been taken to prevent incidents like this from happening again and to ensure roads are safe. But it's clear from this report that more work is retired or is required rather and that they will uh, be going over uh, and addressing the recommendations as quickly as possible. We're going to talk about that a little bit more coming up uh, a little later on today, but obviously uh, that much-anticipated report out uh, earlier on today. What else we got? Oh, Google and the government have reached a deal, uh, but we really don't know much about it other than it involves uh, a lot of money, but how that makes it to uh, various uh, sources or not, not sure exactly what the details are. Also, the U.S. Uh, has laid charges against a man who was plotting to kill a Sikh separatist on U.S. soil. You might remember the Prime Minister also uh, talked about that uh, several weeks ago and uh, was sort of out on an island by himself. Now the U.S. involved in all of this, so it'll be interesting to see how uh, if the two of them working together will uh, resolve this issue with India. Uh, what else we got? Oh, uh, more polling out. Uh, three quarters say that uh, higher immigration is uh, putting more strain on the housing shortage that we have also with health care. And uh, we're going to need, I guess, about 3.5 million homes. 
uh, in the pipeline by 2030 to uh, even lower the housing affordability situation. So uh, more of that on the forefront. And Ipsos, uh, three and four Canadians want the Prime Minister to take a walk in the snow. Uh, but that doesn't seem like it's going to be the case. Uh, so anyway, those are some of the stories that we're watching. Uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, we're going to have... Uh, somebody on to talk about the housing situation and uh, where the money is going to need to come from in order to get it done. Because, you know, anytime you do something uh, or you try to play catch up, number one, mistakes are going to be made and lots of money is going to be spent because there's lots of opportunity, which, of course, should have been there over the last 20 years. So, uh, you know, we're already behind the eight ball. And as I mentioned, uh, there's going to be a large amount of building going on in a short period of time. And where does that money come from? How do we make sure that uh, the, the task at hand is is fulfilled? How do we make sure that we actually get shovels in the ground and this and this uh, actually moving forward? Uh, also, uh, this is this is bizarre. Uh, Sports Illustrated, you know, you certainly have heard of the magazine over the years. Uh, they are being accused of using AI generated. Uh, articles. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, I don't know if you're old enough to remember Spinal Tap, uh, but this was uh, sort of a, you know, it was a Rob Reiner project where uh, this uh, myth fake band was uh, was uh, created and it was sort of became a cult classic. And in, it was years ago, but apparently everybody is getting back together to do a sequel including not only the original members of Spinal Tap, uh, but also chatter of Elton John being involved in this and Paul McCartney being involved in this. So uh, it's very bizarre. We'll talk about that coming up with Eric Alper uh, a little later on. Fascinating article in the Globe and Mail by Greg Khalil. Uh, we simply don't have enough money to solve Canada's housing crisis. Uh, Greg is the founder and managing partner of Stormont Partners, a real estate-focused uh, merchant bank in Toronto. And I, I'm just going to give you some bullet points of, of, the, of the beginning of this article. Obviously understood that Canada's housing market is critically undersupplied. 3.5 million more housing units than are currently in the pipeline to be delivered by 2013 are needed to restore affordability, which is a word we always hear, uh, not able to correct the situation by 2030 and probably not even by 2040. Uh, we would need to triple our current rate of production in a system that is already at full capacity to solve Canada's housing crisis. We need to address the capacity problem at all levels at uh, and all at once, and the task is too heavy at present. At present. Housing does not uh, magically appear uh, when there is a demand for it. It takes time. And I find this fascinating. Uh, it, it takes time. Infrastructure needs to be built to support it. The construction industry needs to have the capacity to deliver it. And our housing economy needs to hold enough money to fund it, which it does not. Greg Khalil is with us now, uh, founding uh, founder and managing partner of Stormont Partners. Greg, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you, Scott. Explain your point. Our housing economy needs to hold enough money to fund it, which it does not. Uh, well, the housing economy's got a lot of money in it right now, but uh, that money is pretty much fully employed in producing roughly 250,000 housing units each year. Um, uh, the money is in the housing economy for about five or six or seven years before it cycles out the other end and gets reinvested at the beginning of the next housing cycle. So that money is fully employed. Um, if we need to produce 
you know, according to CMHC's study, if we need to produce three and a half million more housing units in the next seven-ish years, uh, we got to find a bunch more money because the money that's in the system right now is busy doing other things. Where does that come from? Um, it, it can come in part from elsewhere in the Canadian economy, but as the article um, uh, hopefully demonstrates, the um, uh, the way pension funds, life insurance companies, um, public real estate companies allocate uh, uh, their their investments, uh, it's not all going to be directed at housing. And even if even if it's going to be directed at housing, it won't all be directed at housing development. Some of it will be directed at uh, income-producing housing that's already built and in production. So it's not creating new housing, it's just owning existing housing. Um, so in order to stimulate more capital investment in the Canadian economy, the government needs to figure out ways to incentivize more investment. Uh, that would be in part, uh, and they're doing, they're actually doing some good things now. Like they're looking at things like uh, property tax relief. They're looking at things like reducing develop, reducing or removing development charges um, uh, and, you know, some other measures. Um, but uh, you know, that those, those only go so far. Um, and in order to, you know, really stimulate a lot more investment in the in the housing economy, they need to come up with ways to incentivize its participation. So within Canada, that's probably some tax relief. Um, and the big thing, though, is there's a lot of money that wants to invest in Canada, uh, and there is foreign investment in Canada's housing market, um, but it's um, it's it's taxed uh, quite heavily, so it's at a it's at a disadvantage in several ways. Um, apart from you know foreign investors having to invest in a, a place they're not as familiar with, which they would regard as a bit riskier, uh, they have currency risk, um, uh, and then they have um, a tax on the way out that reduces their returns. So it's a bit of a disincentive for a lot of foreign capital. Is foreign investment a key to getting out of this? Is it? Do we have to have foreign investment in order to do this? Well, I believe it is. Um, if if you actually uh, try to follow the the kind of rough math in the article that was in the Globe, uh, you know, first of all, you know, I'm 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 using CMHC's number to sort of make a point, like we had, we had to pick a number. Mm -hmm. So just using their number, um, you do need about $500 billion in, in equity. Forget about the debt. You need a ton of construction debt as well. Uh, but forget about that and just look at the equity. Um, you, if, if you go through the math that was in the article, uh, you can't add up 500 billion, mm -hmm. um, from within the the sources like pension funds and insurance companies and public companies and private equity, it it just doesn't work. So it's it's a there's a very plain message there that it has to come from somewhere, and uh, there's just not enough of it in Canada. Pension funds aren't going to overnight decide that it's a smart investment approach to, um, you know, overly concentrate in any one sector. Nor nor is anyone else. Uh, it's it's a fundamental sort of principle of, 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 of their approach to investing that they diversify. They diversify by geography, yeah. uh, including going outside of Canada, um, uh, quite heavily outside of Canada, in fact, um, and they diversify by asset class. 
We hear the the term affordable housing being thrown around a lot. Is is affordable housing even possible until supply catches up to demand? Uh, it, it's it's hard, um, and I'll just I'll just sort of generalize. Um, you can create affordable housing in some parts of the country, where where land costs are very very low, where development charges are very low, where um, uh, uh, you know approval processes are quick. Um, uh, and, you know, you're building a type of construction that is less expensive than a concrete high rise in a major city. So it is possible to create affordable housing. It's also possible, um, to adopt uh, other building technologies, more innovative technologies like modular housing, which can be built very, very quickly and affordably. Uh, we're not doing enough of that kind of thing, but I think the point of the article is it kind of has to happen on all levels, it has to happen on the on the approvals level, uh, which which is really a time factor, because uh, time costs money in real estate development. Um, we have to have the infrastructure to support it, so there have to be schools and fire stations and hospitals and stuff like that. Um, uh, we have to have the capacity and the construction system, and that's a big big challenge. Um, and we have to have the money. So you know, if all those things come together, then we can start producing affordable housing. But um, you know, there, there, there are things that get in the way of it, right? Like, you know, you get a tax regime, uh, including very much at the, at the municipal level where municipalities like Toronto, for example, are relying very heavily on yeah. large, large development charges. Greg Khalil is the founder and managing partner of Stormont Partners, real estate-focused merchant bank based in Toronto, and his latest in the Globe and Mail, We Simply Don't Have Enough Money to Solve Canada's Housing Crisis. Greg, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. You too. All right. We've talked a lot about AI on this show and how much is too much because a lot of it is already in our lives. And uh, this week, an online science and tech outlet reported that it had found a series of product reviews on the Sports Illustrated website that had been published last summer, initially under the byline of a writer who appeared to have no other online present and the author of a headshot from uh, a generated stock photo library and then replaced with a different byline and author photo that were similarly fake. Uh, and uh, Sports Illustrated is answering for this now. Let's talk about this and, of course, recent developments before, uh, between uh, the Canadian government and social media. Uh, Jeffrey Dvorkin with a senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you, Scott. All right, we're just hearing announcements coming out now that some sort of agreement has been reached between Facebook and the government on content and such. Uh, Meta, I understand, still uh, um, hasn't come to any agreement. What do you know about this, and, and, and what does this mean moving forward from your perspective? Well, it was inevitable, I guess. Um, it There's a lot of money to be made by these large um, media platforms like Google and Meta. Um, and uh, it was ine inevitable that they would come to some kind of agreement. Um, and it was making the government look kind of narrow and mean-minded mean uh, that they were making so many demands on poor old uh, Zuckerberg and, and the others hmm. um, because people actually have come to rely on, on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and 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 all of these sites have appealed to us 
as passive, more passive consumers. Um, maybe this will be a wake-up call for media organizations to say that they may not rely overly on these sources until they can figure out where this information comes from, why it's being posted, and who's posting it. Uh, any idea or has there been any chatter that you've heard of, Jeff, of where this is going, how it will get to those news agencies that need it? Um, that's still apparently being worked out. Uh, and it, and as it has been worked out in Australia and in uh, the European common market, the EU, um, it'll happen in Canada as well. And I think that uh, we shouldn't feel too panicked about being the last to be part of this august company, as it were. It'll happen, and it'll probably happen by the end of the year. All right. Uh, lots of chatter about uh, artificial intelligence, AI, how to use it, when not to use it, what, you know, where's the line, I guess, is the big question. And now there's uh, accusations against uh, Sports Illustrated uh, that their articles or uh, uh, the, these uh, reviews, product reviews, had were generated through AI. What are your thoughts in, in not only what has happened, but the response from Sports Illustrated? Well, it's another example of the digital culture going in a direction that doesn't serve the public as well as it could. As I understand this story, Sports Illustrated contracted out uh, some stories to a freelance company, and they contracted it out to yet a third company. And it was the third company that said, mm. which had a clearly no ethical standing at all, and basically turned on the robots <laughs> to produce these stories. And I think we're seeing, first of all, it is a an awful situation to be in because it mm. calls into question the credibility of all media, not just of Sports Illustrated. So I think we need to be uh, very disturbed, very upset by what's happened. Um, Apparently, there was a petition around the Sports Illustrated newsroom signed by, quote, the humans at Sports Illustrated, because a lot of this content is being generated by AI, and a lot of it is, is wrong, simply wrong. I actually went to one of the AI companies, ChatGPT, and asked uh, to do my obit. And they mm -hmm. came back with a whole bunch of things that I never did which would have been nice if I had done it, but I haven't. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So it's what it is, is garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, and exactly. To me, this calls for much more vigilance on the part of news management. Uh, and also to say that, you know, we started this down this road with digital. And we said, you know, we can do things more on the cheap. We don't need all these people to do all this so-called journalism. Let's just kind of generate stuff electronically and put clickbait so that the people get interested in it. What this has done, it has cheapened the whole concept of journalism, and it has made journalism look fragile and ridiculous. And, and they ought to be ashamed of themselves at Sports Illustrated and any other media managers that's thinking of doing this. Uh, has the, the interest turned to uh, traffic hits, you know, quantity rather than quality? I, I mean, have some lost their way as to what their objective is here? Um, the purpose of media organizations 
um, is to basically count the number of people clicking on certain articles yeah. and being allowing them to direct those the, the audience to further interest in the stories that they are interested in, which is fine up to a point. But what it does is that it takes away the idea that journalism is about making choices. You make choices every day about what you think your audience would be interested in. And you, Scott, are informed by what your audience has been telling you. You don't contract out that those decisions to a robot somewhere in the ether. And I think that that's the difficulty right now is that all media need to reaffirm their commitment to serving the public as citizens, not just as people who point and click. What do you think the future of journalism will look like? Because, you know, it still will be there in some form. We just don't know what the method of distribution or, or, or how, you know, or how it, how it gets there. But, you know, at one time, media organizations were small. Some, many were family run. Uh, and then they would get bigger regionally and such. And then, uh, you know, I don't know, 30 years ago, all of a sudden those families started selling out to big media, uh, conglomerates, which were basically television station operations and sort of lost their way with with everything else do you think there's a, a market an interest for going back to that local angle and that uh, you know smaller business as opposed to a, a one template fits all well gosh I hope so um, and what I'm seeing now because I'm on LinkedIn and I see a whole litany of jobs going journalistic jobs really solid journalistic jobs going, being asked to, do we know anybody who would be interested in doing this job? There's a, a local media company in Canada called Village Media. You may have heard of them. And they're in small towns. They do print, uh, but mostly they do online, but they're doing local news and information, uh, especially in the Maritimes and outside of the GTA. And they're doing, I think, an excellent job. A number of my students have ended up working for Village Media. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be there. The question is, can we make sure that there is less convergence, that there are these media moguls are swallowing up these tiny stations and newspapers and, and, and making them into something that they don't serve their audience properly? Anyway, I th I'm hopeful, and what I'm saying whenever I'm asked, is that I, I hope that, that it's time to say, okay, this, this is enough. We need to start thinking about journalism in a little more serious way and, and, and stop listening to all these awful consultants that are flooding <laughs> into management offices and saying, I know what's wrong with your system and I can fix it for you. Just fire another 30% of your staff and you'll mm. be fine. I think that, the, that we've had a plague of consultants in the, in the media. And we need to step back and say, no, the people who are running the media in the newsrooms actually have some pretty good ideas and we need to listen to them. Jeffrey Dvorkin with us, senior fellow Massey College, former director of journalism at University of Toronto Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age, talking all things media. Jeff, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Cheers. Uh, Spinal Tap. I, I remember back in the day uh, when uh, I was on Y95 and, and Spinal Tap was back then. 
and there was, it was an anniversary of something. And uh, along with much music, we took a whole pile of contest winners and played their Canada Day celebrations, uh, traveling like a rock star with Spinal Tap, uh, opening the show. I believe it was Signal Hill, uh, on the rock and then flew to Molson Park and Barry and, and did a, a portion of a show there and then ended it all like around midnight at UBC and the tragically hip, uh, were on just before Spinal Tap finished it then. But now they're like back again. But this time, hey, they brought a whole swack of people with them uh, and a new movie. Eric Elper is with his music publicist and commentator, uh, commentator and here now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm good. You know what? You just crystallized the whole bizarreness of it is that <laughs> they're, they're real actors doing fake characters, doing real performances of fake songs that when you talk to them in character, it's fake, but they're doing real things in the world. It's yeah. absolutely bizarre. I remember like on this plane and we were doing this, it was all, you know, radio contest winners and much music and such. And they would literally come out in, in their garb and start talking to everybody. And it was, yeah. it was hilarious just to even be a part of. So, uh, how do you explain that it, it's back for a, another movie and this time some pretty heavy hitters in it? Yeah, Rob Reiner, the director and one of the writers, revealed this week that um, This is Spinal Tap is going to have its sequel, finally. And not only are Christopher Guest and Michael McKeon and Harry Shearer, the three main members of Spinal Tap, on board for the writing of this. And Rob Reiner is going to um, recreate again Marty DeBerge, who is the the mockumentary film director. Yeah. But they brought on Paul McCartney, Elton John, and Garth Brooks are going to be in the film. There's no word yet on whether or not if they're going to be playing themselves. It looks like that they are, um, but it's going to coincide um, with the 40th anniversary of the original film um, that is set to start shooting in February of 2024. Any idea what the storyline's going to be here? Like, I'm guessing some sort of, like, there's so many things you could do, like a reunion oh, tour or whatever. <laughs> Again, you're right. It doesn't matter. It really, it, it could be... It could be, you know, a, a, a reinvention of their one night only world tour that they did in the UK that they literally played just for one night and turned it into a world tour. Um, it, it could just be the fact that they're all getting older and that, you know, maybe one of them needs money. Maybe they're doing a benefit for drummers that self-destructed because as the movie says, that happens a lot more than what people <laughs> realize. It doesn't matter. The fact is, though, that whatever they're able to do, there will be another countless thousands of bands that all look at the sequel and say they're writing and they're they're that's about us like that. There were so many bands that came out. Aerosmith thought yeah. it was a documentary like Aerosmith thought it was a real band <laughs> yeah. that went through the exact same things that they did. Def Leppard and so many bands that I've talked to over the years have all gotten lost in the basement of a venue. And one of them will just shout out, you know, hello, Cleveland rock and roll. Like yeah, it's yeah. so real. It's, it's eerie how many things they got right. And the, you know, even the, the whole uh, idea of just an aging rock band, you know, there's a million different things they can do there. So we don't know if these people, 
people are actually playing themselves, meaning Garth Brooks, Elton John, McCartney, or if they are characters or such. But you could easily see how this could be woven into a real life scenario. Yeah, especially because Harry Shearer, who played Derek Smalls, the bassist, came out with a single a couple of weeks ago called Barbie Must Die. And it is a old man um, screaming at the clouds version of an older rock star um, getting really upset that Barbie is still existing in his world. And it's a real single. You can listen to it with a real video. But all the interviews that Harry did were in the character of Derek Smalls. So mm. you get the feeling like these things that each of the characters have done in the last 40 years could very well be a part of this film because it's part of their history as this so-called band Spinal Tap. Surprised to see these stars uh, going or uh, being a part of this? No, they love it. They love. I mean, this is what Christopher Guest loves to do. He loves to improvise. He's done a, a number of films where they really didn't have a script, um, much like this is Spinal Tap, where they just came up with a germ of an idea and then did a number of scenes based on that idea and shot, you know, 130 hours worth of footage for Spinal Tap, um, and only two hours actually made it into the final cut. Michael McKeon continues to play music, so and act. And he um, he always gives shout outs and reposts on social media whenever he likes to, whenever people talk about Spinal Tap. Mm. So I think Harry, Michael and Christopher and Rob, there's a definite soft spot in their hearts for this film, even though that they might have, you know, didn't really get a lot of money for it. In fact, there was a number of lawsuits <laughs> that the, the, the four of them did against seemingly everybody that had to do with it, including their record label and film company, because they didn't really make it that much money off of the, the success of the film. Spinal Tap is back. They start filming in February, original cast, and also adding in Paul McCartney, Elton John, and Garth Brooks. It'll be fun to see. Eric Alper with us, music publicist and commentary. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Good news. The Coastal Gasling Pipeline Project is mechanically complete before the year-end deadline, although it's... The deadline's been pushed back. I guess it took about 10 years for this thing to get uh, built. The Coastal GasLink pipeline stretches from northern B.C. And uh, in the statement from TC Energy, it has been made by finishing Canada's first pipeline to the West Coast in over 70 years. Installation of the pipe finish, mechanical uh, completion means end of construction. And they've tested the 670K line uh, and such. Uh, and now the team is in the field getting ready to deliver gas to the LNG. Canada Processing and Export Facility in Kitimac on BC's northern coast. Uh, it all says the well construction crews have been picking up and reclaiming work still needs to be done. Uh, planning for this pipeline uh, a decade ago, uh, delayed by protests including train blockades across the country. Originally estimated a cost of $6.2 billion, but climbed to $14.5 billion in the most recent price tag released by TC Energy. To talk more about all of this, Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP and with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, and uh, good to be here. Thank you. Uh, Surprised that this is, uh, I guess, sort of ahead of schedule or that it's even been completed? Well, yes. I mean, in Canada, it seems to be that you can't complete any pipeline, but uh, we have this one that's completed. That'll be the second pipeline, uh, although it's not oil, it's natural gas. The second one we've, we've built 
uh, in 70 years. And there'll be a third one, of course, the expansion, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which could be ready early part of uh, January or February. Um, in the case, of course, of Coastal Gas Link, as you quite rightly pointed out, protests, uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, wrangling across the country of obstruction uh, by green uh, interests and fanatics. Uh, and of course, uh, it does come at a time where uh, the world needs a lot more Canadian energy, particularly natural gas and oil. Unfortunately, we don't have the the liquefaction plant, uh, the LNG plant, up and running. That won't be ready till you know re- pretty much for another year, year and a half. That's the uh, Canada LNG, and then there's a tinier one owned by uh, the Hazla uh, First Nation. Uh, that's known as Cedar. That'll be ready uh, probably about a year after that as well. So great promise, but uh, getting the pipe there was the big challenge. Now, of course, the next hurdle is to get those uh, those uh, LNG plants up and running. Uh, obviously, we certainly know uh, everything is death by delay, it seems. Uh, Ten years to get this built. Many thought by the time it would, the need wouldn't be there. Simply not the case. Well, yeah. I mean, look, something like this in the States uh, probably take a lot less time. Um, you know, in the, Canada had 17 of these uh, on the books. None of them until really this week were ready or built. Um, and those that were uh, on plan were obviously uh uh, you know, deferred uh, or simply uh, companies were not prepared to go through the nonsense of constant, uh, you know, lawfare and organizations using Canada as a soft target and getting their way in terms of delays. So while Canada sat on its uh, fingers, uh, uh, the United States uh, proceeded with at least eight or nine of these projects and they're doing extraordinarily well. Cashing in so far, U.S. numbers are about $170 billion, that's for the B a year. Uh, that's U.S., so that'd be about a quarter trillion dollars. A lot of that could have been Canadian, but of course, Canadians uh, more, are more interested in, you know, blocking pipelines and bending over backwards for every Tom, Dick, and Harry. So unfortunately, that uh, how does that affect us? Well, for people who think it's no big deal, think about the next time your hospital's overcrowded or your infrastructure's not working well or uh, you can't get the kind of jobs you want and uh, Canada can't attract the kind of capital into the country, which means it has a weak Canadian dollar which adds to the price of everything we pay. So it's all it's all connected, folks. Uh, now that these are built or on their way to getting built, uh, as you said, a fraction of what was initially planned, it, is the tone changing? Because, again, now they are or will be delivering. Will this make a difference to the world revenue for Canada? It will when the uh, plants are up and running, and I think it may very well signal what we're seeing, uh, you know, uh, more recently is uh, the effect that Russia has had on, you know, preventing uh, natural gas from getting to places like Europe and uh, Europe now being forced to resort to burning coal. Uh, so I think Canadians are starting to realize to a, um, a greater extent, we're not talking about you know, exporting coal, which, of course, we do. We're talking about exporting, uh, you know, something that most of the world realizes is, is an important uh, hydrocarbon the likes of which the world is going to need a lot more of, especially if we want to achieve those goals of reducing emissions that are currently being threatened by the almost weekly, uh, you know, uh, launch of, of yet another coal plant in India, Indonesia, uh, South Korea, Japan, or, of course, China.
All right, the Coastal GasLink pipeline is ready uh, when gas goes through, uh, hopefully in the near future. Dan McTagg, President of Canadian for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Dan, thank you for the time. As always, be well. A pleasure. Thanks for having me, Scott. Take care. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Tasha Carradine is with us, journalist, writer with the National Post, G-Zero Media, and her Substack page, in my opinion, author of The Right Path. And the latest in the National Post, Canada, the land of imported ethic conflicts. Canada uh, Canadians of all background believe diversity is both a strength and a problem. To talk more about all of this, Tasha Carradine with us now. Tasha, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Um, yes, I am, Scott. Thank you. So, Tasha, how much do you think this latest conflict between Hamas and Israel has complicated this issue? Well, I think it's brought a lot of elements to the fore that maybe were, I guess, un- rumbling along, but not really addressed. And um, I think a lot of people have been shocked, particularly by the level of anti-Semitism that we've seen and uh, the openness with, it, with which it is expressed. Um, and this poll is interesting because uh, it was done about 1,500 Canadians, Leger, uh, surveyed them and asked their opinions about the protests related to the, the, the war, uh, the spike in hate crimes. And what they found was 56% of Canadians say that while some elements of diversity can provide strength, some can cause problems and conflict. And an additional 21% say, say that diversity is definitely causing problems and conflict. So I think it's like I said, it's 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 brought out things to the surface that people perhaps were not discussing or not conscious of. And they are taking a second look at the mantra of this government, which is, you know, diversity is our strength, period. Um, that being said, I mean, um, you know, Canada is a land of immigrants. We all have parents or, or aunts, uncles, whatever, who have immigrated here or kids of what have you. How did this change? When did we become so divided? Well, I think, um, you know, Canada is a country of immigrants. We've always been a country of immigrants. And, you know, most of us are, are children of immigrants or somewhere along the line, there's, there's an immigrant in your family. Um, but I think the, the divisions have been exacerbated by government policy um, starting in the late 1960s, which with the multiculturalism policy, the state multiculturalism policy. It's, it's one thing to be multicultural, which Canada is. It's another thing to uh, encourage that that divisiveness or encourage those divisions by saying we, we encourage you to, to maintain your own culture as opposed to really focusing on the commonalities that we have and the values that Canada stands for when people come here. Things like our charter, things like back in, in those days anyway, uh, you know, basics, democracy, the rule of law, that kind of thing. So I think that over time, we've eroded the common stuff in favor of the, uh, you know, the divisive stuff. And we've also overlaid that with the narrative, the sort of woke narrative, to, 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 to say it in very basic terms, of um, you know, Canada as a, a bad colonial country. And, and I'll say it very bluntly, because that is a narrative being used now in, with relation to the conflict between Hamas and Israel. Um, it's been played out in Canada, and yes, you know, our country has things to atone for in terms of the way we've treated Indigenous people, but it's a bigger narrative than simply that. It's saying that anyone here who has any kind of privilege is a colonial, and that's that. And I think it's really simplistic, it's really reductionist, and it's it's dividing people in a way that is really unhealthy. What's common in a land of immigrants? Uh, are we trying to be too much to everyone and thus stoking fires? 
Well, you know, it's interesting because um, the opinion of, of divisiveness around um, uh, the issues of diversity isn't just shared. It's like I say in the article, it's not the view of old white men with a high school education in rural Canada, yeah. which is a stereotype yeah. that, you know, it's thrown out yeah. there. I'll put it out there. It's actually an equal number of white and BIPOC respondents. So 55% of, of white Canadians, Caucasian Canadians identify and 56% of black indigenous or people of color. So the same thing, they both yeah. believe it's a strength and a problem in Quebec. It's the same as the rest of Canada. So again, it's not a French English thing. Um, and more women than men, interestingly, think that there's more division. Uh, 60% of women, 51% of men, 61% of university grads, 52% think that diversity is both a strength and a weakness. So the, the, it, it, it's a very common thing, and politicians need to pay attention to it. Uh, do you think Canadians are feeling that they're being made to pick, an, to pick a side, pick one of the extreme sides, instead of uh, basing their opinions on the values of, uh, of themselves? Well, you know, in talking to people about the current conflict, um, a common theme has emerged, which is the sense of having to choose. And it's yeah. a choice um, between not simply necessarily uh, a choice between which side you pick in this conflict, but a choice between what values you espouse and what you think a society should be, i.e. democratic rule of law. Uh, violence is not, you know, you don't accept terrorism, period. Like, are you a society yeah. that accepts terrorism as a yeah. solution to problems? No, you're not. But if you're accepting what, you know, Hamas did on the 7th of October, for example, as resistance, then implicitly that's what you're saying. And mm-hmm. people are, are you know, it, it, it's it's a shocking binary choice. And a lot of people are feeling really uncomfortable with that because they have never been faced with that before in these terms. When 9-11 happened, it was a binary choice. And people, sh- they're like, yeah, of course, like, this is no good. We don't accept this, uh, at least not in this country and not in the U.S. But um, now we're seeing very different conversations. So it's this whataboutism that a lot of people are saying, well, wait a minute, this isn't a whatabout thing. This is not a whatabout thing. This is, this is a binary choice. And so they're feeling pushed, like you said, to, they're pushed into different camps. And they might end up in those camps with people they, you know, didn't think were like them either. You know, the right and the far right, I have no you know, space for the very far right at all. And yeah. they're anti-Semitic, too. Um, and so it's making very strange bedfellows between people on a lot of issues. It seems that this whole thing has been positioned around Palestinians versus Israelis, as opposed to democracy and freedom versus terror and authoritarianism. And really, Correct. that's the discussion. And why yeah. why are we why are we focusing on the Palestinian and Israeli conflict as opposed to or, or what religion one religion versus the other, the left versus the right, any of that? It's really about democracy and free and freedom versus the opposite. Um, there's been a concerted effort for the past couple of decades to uh, advocate for the Palestinian cause, um, and you know the Palestinians they have many legitimate grievances and issues. Unfortunately, they've also been governed by a party in, in Gaza, not the West Bank, but in Gaza, that has espoused the, the destruction of Israel. And they are a terrorist organization. Mm-hmm. Um, they call themselves the Islamic resistance movement. But what they did on the 7th of October isn't resist. But, you know, these were not soldiers. These were civilians. There was no resisting going on here. It was just terror. And the problem is that things have been conflated. Um, and people, when they think they, they, they don't see the Hamas, they see the Palestinians. They say, yeah. OK, Palestinians live in these terrible conditions and they've been bombed and it's terrible. And they don't, they don't think to the other piece, which is, wait a minute, the, the people who are doing this are not necessarily speaking on behalf of all Palestinians, right? Um, Hamas mm-hmm. is, is a terror group. It is, it predates ISIS. Uh, its tactics are very similar. 
And it is wrecking havoc in the lives of Palestinians as well. And many are too afraid to speak out. They just don't. So, you know, you're not going to get sympathy by saying, yay, Hamas. So some people are saying that, which is even more horrible. Yeah. But you will get sympathy when you say, look, right. Palestinian children are dying. Of course. Right. What does it say when Canadians are concerned about immigration numbers? Are we all of a sudden less welcoming or is that just reality and ability well, think, to cope? I think, it's a, I think it's a reality too. just our economic situation already. I mean, before even the conflict and the war began, people were questioning and saying, you know, we don't have enough housing for people who are here. We're bringing in 800,000 students that we have on visas, right, who are cramming into basements because they have nowhere to live. Uh, you know, we haven't asked the schools that are welcoming them. Hey, do you have housing for these kids? Like there's it's a crisis. It really is. And so people this makes people anti-immigrant. This is the danger, right? Is that people yeah, yeah. economic hard times make people then veer very hard right, very, very anti-immigration. And that is not what we want. But we want to manage it in a way that makes sense. And right now, I think the numbers are too high. I think it doesn't make sense. And our government, for all sorts of political reasons, isn't going there. Tasha Kiridan with us, her latest in the post, Canada, the land of imported ethnic conflicts. Canada of all back, Canadians of all backgrounds believe diversity is both a strength and a problem. Tasha, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. A new Ipsos poll is out. You know what it says. Um, yeah, people aren't happy with the prime minister. Another one. Does it matter, though, when we're two years out, uh, even though uh, almost three quarters of Canadians uh, are looking for a new leader or think it's time for one to go for a walk in the snow? Let's bring in Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Polling. And here now, Daryl, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well, Scott. How are you? So far, so good. Daryl, does it matter with two years of runway there as long as the NDP and the Liberals agreement holds out? Uh, well, not as much as it might matter if there was only like six months into somebody's term, but he's got eight years behind him. Hmm. So uh, the, the, the problem is that most of this stuff is pretty much burned in. And uh, at this point in time, um, the things that he could do to change things around are really not in his hands. It would have to be a massive screw up by the leader of the opposition, which could could happen, or some mm -hmm. series of maybe one significant external event, but a series of uh, significant external events that would give him an opportunity to demonstrate a type of leadership that we haven't seen from him. So uh, uh, it's it's difficult to see what it would be. Uh, new housing announcements, even budget update. None of that is moving the needle at all. Not a drip. What In about fact, the numbers? The numbers have been going steadily down. Many have have pointed to uh, Pierre Polyev, and you just alluded to it, you know, unless the Conservatives shoot themselves in the foot, which they've done many times, uh, Pierre Polyev can still be a little bit prickly. Is that hurting him in any way when he says things that, that, that really, uh, you know, get the opposition cranky? Not really. I, I don't think that the, the public's paying that much attention to it. I, I think on X, it drives, you know, part, partisans crazy one way or the other. but. Uh, um, at, at this stage of the game, uh, um, what people are looking for is change. And even when he's at his prickliest and people are disagreeing with him in the media and all the rest of it, to the extent that he looks different from, from Justin Trudeau, it actually probably doesn't hurt him.
we hear that uh, the Liberal Party has a new communications gur- uh, guru that uh, he's starting, uh, I think, any day now. And many have said that uh, the problem with the Liberals is their communication is off. Is it the communication that is off or they're communicating their points? It's just people aren't interested in the points. Do you think there'll be much of a difference with a new person at the helm there? No. I mean, the the idea that bringing in a single communications person is going to change around eight years of experience that people have would be a very big stretch for that person. And and, and by the way, putting that kind of expectations on the person is is really unfair. Mm. I mean, ultimately, the 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 single most uh, notable communicator for this government, for good and bad, is is the prime minister himself, and uh, he believes he's a fundamentally a naturally good com- uh, communicator. And we've seen time periods in which he's been a brilliant communicator. Mm-hmm. So that somebody is going to tell him how to do it better, I, I, I really don't see that that's uh, that's something that's going to make a huge difference for Canadians. We talked about having a, t- a couple of years of runway, if that continues on, Daryl, uh, with a new person at that helm, if, say, three months from now, four months from now, maybe March or, or February or such, uh, that person says, you know what, here's what I'm getting back, that, that, that it's not going to work for you, that it's going to require somebody else or a change in leadership in order for the party to move forward. Does a new communications person reinforce that and give the party more leverage if they want to push him aside? Uh, possibly, but I I think that uh, Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, is a pretty self-contained individual when it comes to his own political future. Uh, He's a a very smart reader of uh, of public opinion. Uh, He's a smart reader of circumstances. Uh, He's got a lot of uh, um, experience in politics, and he's seen even his own father go through a a very similar sort of circumstance. So uh, at at some point, uh, he's going to... uh, uh, come to terms with the fact that it's, it's as difficult as it is. And he's either going to decide he wants to stay around to lose or he's going to take another path. Um, at, at the moment, there's nothing in the polling that suggests that, uh, that he would be in a position to win another election. Uh, the NDP, obviously, were holding this government to account with Pharmacare and such. And they now have seemed to relax those deadlines and, and they're not going to push the government, uh, you, you know, to, to move on this. Uh, at what point does this become a detriment for the NDP? It's already a detriment for the NDP. And the reason is because uh, as far as the liberals are down, the, the NDP should be up. Now, the yeah. NDP has moved up a little bit, and they're now actually getting in a position where they're almost tied with the liberals, and uh, at least in our polling. Um, and uh, so at some point, having this arrangement with the government doesn't make a lot of sense. If, if they're able to, they could defeat this government and actually end up challenging to at least be the 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 uh, the opposition party in the next parliament. So maybe being part of the government in the way that they are, uh, they can justify it to themselves to uh, that they're uh, achieving certain policy ends as a result of of uh, not achieving their political ends. But at some point, they are a political party and they need to behave like one. Uh, do you think the NDP is looking at the official opposition? Do you think it's possible that uh, through all of this, they could end up being the official opposition? Yeah, very possible. And we've seen it before. Back in 2011, when Stephen Harper won his majority, uh, the NDP ended up as the official opposition under Jack Layton. So the, the possibility is there. Um, as long as national unity in the province of Quebec isn't the dominant issue, and it's all about brokerage politics between uh, Quebec and Ontario, uh, 
then all of a sudden we start moving into a situation in which there's more of a kind of a progressive side of the equation than a conservative uh, side of the equation. The progressive side of the equation has two options. The conservatives have only one option. So at some point, hmm. there's a possibility that all those progressive voters, which is the biggest block of voters, decide to back another horse other than the Liberal Party, and that would be the NDP. Daryl Bricker with us, CEO of Ipsos, new Ipsos polling out. Uh, again, the trend continues. Uh, the prime minister is continuing to slip. Daryl, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Bye. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, the Red Hill Valley Parkway report is out to talk more about all of this. Larry Deani with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, and here now. Larry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am very well, Scott. Thank you for having me on. So, Larry, you were a mayor trying to get this thing built way back when. Lots of delay, lots of protests. I mean, I think it's obvious that the economic development this has uh, created since it was finally built. Uh, your thoughts on how we get from there to here? Well, um, that's that's a very good question. It took 54 years of uh, acrimonious debate um, before we finally built the the expressway. Uh, And and it has had an economic uplift. There's no question. If you look at the tens of millions of dollars that are brought into the city coffers every year, from all those developments up on the escarpment that that, uh, are there because of the road would not have been there if the road hadn't been there, um, that uh, that money is being used for all sorts of good things for the citizens of this of this uh, city. But the unfortunate part, of course, is that um, you know we've had accidents on the road, uh, and um, and council instead of doing some due diligence and 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 providing a fix, um, they decided to do both. They provided the fix, they repaved the road, they lowered the speed limit. But they also launched this judicial inquiry that has now cost us $28 million. And um, the very first thing I'd like to acknowledge, of course, is that people died. And, and when people mm-hmm. die, obviously, family members and the whole community is upset because there but for the grace of God might go um, any one of us. And so we need to take it seriously when these things occur. But to spend $28 million simply to find out that, uh, as staff had said many times, uh, that there were a number of factors contributing to the accidents that occurred, including the fatal ones, including, as the, uh, as the inquiry is now uh, found out, that there was relatively low friction on the, uh, on the material that was used on the road, whatever that means, relatively low. Um, and, and, of course, um, uh, weather and speed and configuration of the road all, all were contributing factors. And so, um, you know, the fix for the road was there in terms of the repavement. The lower speed limit was there, increased enforcement, although I use the road almost daily and people still speed, even in inclement weather, I might add, which, which to me is reckless on the part of the drivers. Um, to find that out and to find out that, um, uh, the uh, the city engineer at the time, who kept a, record, uh, a report uh, in his drawer rather than uh, putting it out in the public, <clears throat> that was that was called a misconduct by the uh, by the uh, inquiry judge. 
Um, I don't know if that's too harsh of a judgment. I'll let others uh, weigh in on, on that. <clears throat> but certainly the engineer who just didn't trust the results of that report should have advised counsel, should have advised either members of staff. And if there's a silver lining to the report, it's that uh, it tells us that uh, too often uh, bureaucracies work in silos rather than collaboratively. And, uh, you know, you don't need to spend $20 million to find that out. All you have to do is ask anyone who's tried to do any development in the city hmm. to find out that sometimes they're pushed from pillar to post and, uh, and one side of the equation isn't talking to the other side of the equation as they should. And that should not have cost $28 million to, uh, to find that out. Um, so in my estimation, um, of course, uh, you know, people will now dissect the report. Staff will read the report and do their own report on the report uh, and, and decide what it is that they're going to do about the recommendations that are made. But uh, for the taxpayer, having spent $28 million, and by the way, it's the first $28 million that are spent because, as the article in the paper said, uh, lawyers are lining up right now to sue. Um, and there's going to be uh, judgments on those lawsuits as well. And regardless of how they go, they're going to cost the city more millions of dollars in legal fees at least, and maybe some damages as well. So for the taxpayers who could have used that money to do affordable homes, to do other projects that the community needs, uh, in, in my estimation, it was not money well spent. Any <laughs> in results could have been found. Any indication when this thing was being built that it was being compromised in any way, that corners may have been cut? No, of course not. Now, I was there for the approval. I pushed and uh, ran on the approval of the road. Uh, by the time that the construction uh, was occurring, I had left the mayor's chair, so I wasn't privy to any of the reports that were coming forward or the approvals that council had to give. But let me tell you, um, if, if, if council had been told at the time that this material was being used, whereas that other material should have been used, or let's make a choice. Uh, council would have relied on professional staff to give them advice on what best way uh, forward uh, to go. So, uh, you know, it's certainly not when I was there because I was there just for the approval stage, but I'm sure that subsequent to, to my tenure, uh, council would not have had any inkling that there was any corner being cut, if that's the, uh, the suggestion that was being made. In fact, let me tell you this, that the, the judge presiding over the inquiry, if he had sensed over the last number of years that it took to do this report, that the road was, was unsafe, he, had, he would have had the power to shut it down. The fact that he didn't shut it down and simply inquired about what may have happened uh, prior to the uh, to the repavement and so on, indicates that the road was safe to travel on under the right conditions at the right speed. Uh, also, looking uh, at the uh, at the uh, weather uh, situation as it presented itself. So uh, you know this, this story is not over. Uh, it, it's now going to take a um, a, a new phase. And, uh, and those lawyers that are representing uh, those clients, some of whom may have lost uh, loved ones, are keen to see some justice done. Uh, and maybe that's part of the process as well. Uh, but if you look at it from the taxpayer's perspective, 
in terms of what this $28 million report generated. Uh, it's a thousand pages of uh, information that was would have been readily available uh, without going through the process that uh, that the city did. The fact that this report was buried, does that mean there was wrongdoing? Does that mean, you know, and I just disagree with the report, that, you know, there's something more to it than that? So, so the uh, of course, the, the this inquiry is not about finding fault. Yeah. It's about finding facts. Um, but, the, and, and, and I haven't read the report word for word because it just came out today and it's fairly long. Um, but in terms of the executive summary, it doesn't indicate that there was any um, any you know malfeasance or uh, or any intentional um, um, misapplication of good judgment uh, in terms of the construction of the road. It simply it simply suggests that um, that not making that public and bringing it to the decision makers that is council. Uh, that might have been able to ask questions or, or that the public could have been informed and and the uh, the repavement could have happened earlier. What the uh, inquiry found is that there was misconduct in that. In other words, yeah. personal performance was not at the highest level that's to be expected. Um, and and that's a fair comment. And, and in fact, uh, you know, if you remember back to the engineer's uh, conclu- or at least testimony when he testified, he said, I, I didn't hide it. I just didn't agree with it. Yeah. And that was his professional judgment. And therefore, he simply didn't hide it anywhere. He filed it as you would file any report that comes from consultants. Hindsight, of course, is 2020, and it should have been handled differently. And I bet you even the engineer, probably at this point, uh, wishes mm. that he had handled it differently. Larry Diani with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, on the Red Hill Report uh, that is finally out. Larry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too. All right. We talked uh, yesterday to representatives uh, from the city in regard to their winter response strategy. Uh, obviously, the situation being compounded by, uh, over the summer, the issues of tent encampments and such, and virtually across the country, uh, big towns, little towns, uh, communities of all uh, shapes and sizes uh, dealing with the same issue. Uh, and, of course, now that uh, the colder weather has arrived, uh, it creates another scenario. Let's bring in Jennifer Bonner, Executive Director of The Hub Hamilton and here now. Jennifer, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good, Scott. Thanks. Tell everybody about The Hub Hamilton, what exactly it does, Jennifer. Uh, So The Hub Hamilton is a uh, local drop-in center for folks living unhoused. We have a five to nine drop-in that uh, feeds folks, make sure they have the basic needs they need for the evening to get them through. And then we also have a uh, medical clinic on site from one to four every day, Monday through Fridays, low barrier. Folks can access uh, that need to see a doc. And also, of course, uh, an intensive case management program for high-risk youth. But we have been the last two years the city's warming center. Uh, obviously, we've seen the situation grow over the course of the summer, uh, summer tent encampments and such, and many concerned as to what is happening or what does happen when the winter months arrive. There was some uh, hope of, of shelter in some way. That it appears that it has fallen through, but the city has, uh, has uh, created a, a winter response strategy. What are your thoughts on that, and is that enough to get everyone through? It's definitely not enough. We need to do better as a city. Um, I do see, though, that the city has made 
some changes to the plan. Obviously, the decoupling of the uh, cold alert profile, which we advocated for last year, has come through this year. I see that they do have some locations throughout the city because encampments are just not in the downtown core. They're everywhere in our city, and this is a whole of community problem. Um, so there has been some attempt to do that. And obviously, the open call to allow for uh, a lot of service providers to maybe ramp up what they can do in their own facilities uh, to help out with the cold alert. Are we seeing a reduction in the tent encampments just simply because of the whole uh, of the cold weather, or is there just simply no place to go? It's not that we're seeing a reduction. We're just hiding them better. Um, at the end of the day, there is just as many people out there, um, but folks are being pushed further and further to margins because they don't know where to go. The encampment protocol tells them a lot of places where uh, they can't be, but doesn't really tell them where they can be. So folks are just making their way further out, and that's a very, very dangerous proposition for the winter. Um, many have said, or some from the city have suggested that this is, is, is a two pronged problem in the sense that we have the unhoused, but also, uh, an increased refugee system, which, which is putting pressure on those shelters. Does that have to be dealt with in order to free up space that is normally used for this situation? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, federal decisions about that, uh, are important, but yet the province and the feds aren't coming to the table with any money to help secure that. Uh, for folks, right? And that definitely is not a municipality issue. Um, but it it is, you know, at this point, taxing the municipality. All of our shelters have been full for a number of months. Family shelters have been full for since January. Um, and so access to spaces uh, for people is really, really difficult. We have folks who aren't even in those encampment cars because they've been evicted from their homes and sleeping in their cars. That's that hidden homeless piece that isn't included in these numbers. Do you see this problem uh, improving or do you see this being more of a problem next winter? Well, I think we just need to be more proactive. I think I've done your show every year for the last two years. Um, I've been talking about this till I'm blue in the face is that we Mm. start planning this stuff in September. Um, That's not good enough. It just doesn't give people enough time to ramp up for staffing if that's something that they have to do. Um, It certainly doesn't provide any... Uh, sense of comfort to the folks that are living on our streets because they don't know. Um, as of yesterday, they didn't know where they were going to go. Um, so, you know, that's a really difficult thing to to sit with. What can we learn or are we learning anything from other uh, communities? We're hearing a lot about Kitchener-Waterloo and their uh, small homes projects and such, which seem to be working. Can we? Is it being done right in some centers? I think there's a lot of really great models. Um, I think, you know, looking at best practices in other municipalities is, is a really important part of this, um, and having all the right people at the table. Um, I think, you know, there's some compounded issues going on in our city at the moment, and, you know, we should have been having the discussions very early on. Um, so yeah, there's definitely some models that work. Um, we're in difficult times. That's the nature of it. But as a city, we just need to do better. We just need to do better. It was interesting because during the summer, I remember having conversations with with people and such politicians uh, uh, about, you know, what we were going to do in regard to tent encampments. And I'm thinking, you know, then, you know, we're only 90 days out or 60 days out or 30 days out or whatever from the cold weather. It seemed we were uh, working on a situation which was already behind schedule in, in that that we're, you know, creating spaces for the summer when the summer's half over, we should really be concentrating on what we're going to do when the cold weather arrives. 
Well, I think for me, you know, as of March 31st, when our previous program ended for winter warming, we should have been debriefing that. What was working? What wasn't working? How do we get better for this year? Um, and that didn't happen. Um, I delegated to council in September and kind of gave them an overview, but nobody's asked. And that's kind of the concern that I have is that we're not, you know, we're not speaking to the people who are doing the work uh, to get there and present these these pieces out. So um, definitely we're behind schedule. They have been super taxed at the city in terms of encampments and all the stuff that's going on there. So although I don't always agree with everything that they're doing, I do understand there's been a whole ton of work that has to get done. And some of that was emergency based. Um, but I think winter planning, this isn't new. This happens every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to be more prepared. Uh, it seems that we keep coming to the table with band-aids or other programs to get people through as opposed to trying to solve the problem. Do we need to have that bigger discussion about those uh, smaller, uh, you know, tiny homes or, or whatever some of those other solutions are so we're not in this situation, whether it's summer or winter? Yeah. And I think some of those discussions are happening. I think we all know what the, you know, what has to happen here and that's housing and that's a broader discussion and it's not just in Hamilton, that's everywhere. Um, and that is, is what needs to happen. Um, but it also just can't happen, uh, for municipal taxpayers. It needs to have the province and the feds involved at a, at a more, uh, impressive level than they're doing currently. Obviously, uh, a housing crisis in general, um, and there doesn't appear to be any easy way out of that. Do you see the same thing here? I mean, it's going to take it's going to take a couple of years of of doing what we're doing in order uh, b- before we even have a situation where we can offer housing. Yeah, I think people forget that you know tents aren't going away, encampments aren't going away. Um, that is the nature of the beast for the next little while, and we have to find a way to work through this. Um, and temporary measures, unfortunately, are the deal. Uh, we got housing wait lists that are five and six years out. Um, we have, you know, builds that haven't been started yet. We have supportive housing models. We have transitional housing models. We have all of these models in the in the queue. Um, but w- this isn't happening tomorrow. So what are we going to do for the next two or three years? We can't keep operating from an emergency response. We need to to find out what the plan is. What is the interim solution? Um, and that's going to require everybody to be vulnerable with each other and break down some of these silos and have an open dialogue. What can the average Hamiltonian listening do? I think just advocation and understanding that, you know, folks, uh, there's been a lot of hate in Hamilton, right? Mm. Hate for everything at the moment. And there's obviously been a lot of frustration around encampments. Um, but at the end of the day, people die in this weather. Um, this is cold. Sleeping outside is not fun. Um, it is not a choice to be homeless. Um, and so I think it really just comes down to compassion um, and to understanding. And, you know, it's not as easy as, oh, go to rehab and all these other things that we're hearing in the media and that we're seeing on these social media posts. That's not the answer here. The answer is, how can we do this as a community? This is a whole of community problem. And that means a whole of a community solution has to happen. So as an average person who, you know, maybe doesn't, want to dive into an encampment and do outreach or do things like that, you know, just write your counselor and say, Hey, what can we do? You know, what, where do we need to advocate where, you know, where, what can we, do we need this new speed bump today? You know, those kind Mm. of things. Jennifer Bonner with us, executive director of the hub Hamilton talking about the unhoused and how we get through the winter. Jennifer, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. 
Thanks, Scott. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one from Mr. Lowe via email. The Americans had Watergate. The city of Hamilton can now lay claim to Sewergate, Ashfallgate, and let's throw in Encampment Gate. Wow, not good. After Watergate, Nixon knew what to do. Mr. Lowe. Keep writing something to pass. (laughs) 